I knew the reality of what it is up here. And I, I know that it's thin razor margins and it's not going to be my big retirement plan to grow this place and sell it for millions of dollars. What I see here is a way for my family to be able to have a life on a place we love to operate a ski area, to hopefully grow it to the point of being in the black and to keep it here for generations to come so that my kids have a place to ski and their kids have a place to ski. And that's the goal. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, going off the literal grid today to bring you the story of one of America's scrappiest little independent ski areas. We will get right to that after I give a huge thank you to all of the paid subscribers to the Storm Skiing Journal and Podcast who are listening to this conversation seven full days before free subscribers. You have made the storm a sustainable small business, and I can never thank you enough for that. But I think we're just getting started here, and every new paid subscriber helps. If you're currently on the free tier, I do appreciate you, and I totally get that every one of us is dealing with a budget and decisions about where to put their resources. I do want you to know that the paid tier comes with material benefits namely a lot more content than what you're getting now. The article preview that you see when a Storm Skiing Journal email drops into your box is only about 20% of a typical article. And as I mentioned, you will also get podcasts a week early. And the intangible benefit when you upgrade to paid is that you are helping to ensure the future of ski journalism that is about more than stoke and bro culture. In other words, the lift serve skiing world that 99% of us actually inhabit. And if you're not subscribed yet, free or paid, you can do that at stormskiing.com. You can also follow the storm on Twitter slash X, Instagram, and threads at Stormski Journal. All right, I am fired up to introduce a new partner to the Storm Skiing Journal and Podcast the fractional marketing experts at Bonfire Collective. Does your marketing need a fresh perspective from industry experts? Better storytelling, rebranding, advertising. Let me introduce you to Bonfire Collective, a fractional marketing team that collaborates with ski areas and other outdoor brands. What does that mean? Well, it means that Bonfire can help you rethink your approach in ways that can turbocharge your business. When Bonfire Collective took over the marketing at one New Hampshire ski area, they doubled revenue in three years. To get started, you will want to talk to Eric over at Bonfire Collective. Eric was a co-founder of Bluebird Backcountry, the first human-powered ski area, and so he knows the ski business as well as he knows the marketing and advertising world. You can see what Bonfire Collective can do for your ski area or outdoor brand, and reach out to Eric at thebonfirecollective.com. That's thebonfirecollective.com. Click the link in the banner on the article that accompanies this podcast. Episode 161, Charles Lavac, owner of Teton Pass Ski Area, Montana. When most of you hear Teton Pass, your head probably goes directly to Wyoming State Highway 22, a twisting, gorgeous roadway that doubles as a backcountry skiing mecca not far from Jackson Hole Ski Resort. 
But back in the 1960s, before the world was so wired, a little ski area of the same name popped up, little noted, seven hours to the north in Montana. But unlike Big Sky or Whitefish or Red Lodge, this little Montana ski area has stayed little and it stayed obscure. Last year, the bump clocked just 7,000 skier visits. This year, unfortunately, it will record even fewer as owner Charles Levac announced on Instagram 10 days after we'd had this conversation that a lack of snow and a crummy forecast would force him to shutter Teton Pass for the season after just four operating days. But as you'll hear, this is not a hopeless story, but an optimistic one. Teton Pass is struggling, no question. But Levac, who noted in his announcement that he fully intends to operate the ski area as normal in future seasons, is young, smart, creative, scrappy, and committed. He closed his letter to pass holders by saying, quote, this season is just proving to be an anomaly, an outlier, and we are trying to think long-term, end quote. So, while you can't ski Teton Pass, Montana, this winter, I hope you enjoy learning about this quirky little bump, and I hope it inspires you to plug this joint into your GPS when it does reopen for the 2024-25 to 25 ski season. Let's go. My guest today is the owner of Teton Pass Ski Area in Montana. Teton Pass rises 1,000 vertical feet and sits on 400 skiable acres. Prior to purchasing the ski area in 2019, he acted as the mountain's general manager from 2012 to 2017. Charles Lavac is my guest. Charles, always good to check in on Montana. Welcome to the storm. I hope you had a great weekend. How are you doing today, Charles? I'm doing all right, Stuart. Thanks for asking. I'm glad to hear that. And you sound optimistic. You sound good. I know that it hasn't been the smoothest start to the season for you there at Teton Pass. I believe opening day was January 19th. Take us into this, Charles. What's the holdup in northern Montana this year? Yeah, it's been a, a very rough start to the winter, essentially missed all of the, the Christmas break and mm. opportunity to build any sort of momentum this season. And it's just been 100% related to weather. We just don't have the snow and don't have the temps. I'm sitting here in the base area at the lodge today and the forecasted high is 50 degrees. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the season kind of started out looking sort of normal in October. We had a foot or more of snow, which is not uncommon. We've, we almost always get a little bit of a shower in September, October. Sometimes it carries out and stays. Sometimes it melts. And then it just shut off. November, December was just high pressure. Uh, we lost all the snowpack and just, yeah, been waiting. And every time I look out at the 10 day forecast, it's nothing but high pressure. Um, so that, that January storm that we had mid month there came with some moisture followed by extreme temps in the negative. And it was pretty bizarre. I, we, we rode out quite a roller coaster there, kind of got excited, thought we might be on to something. And it was quickly followed up by more warm temps and lack of snow. And so we're sitting here sort of questioning <laughs> what what's going to happen for the rest of the season. Is this the worst season you've seen in your time working at Teton Pass? 
Absolutely. Yeah, this is by far the worst. I think all of Montana is experiencing it. Most of the West is experiencing to some degree. Yeah, I mean, just to, to dig into that a little bit, 2004, 2005 was the last really bad year that I remember, and it was nowhere near as bad as what we're seeing right now. I think most of Montana ski areas got opened by Christmas. It was followed up by a pretty mild winter and maybe some shutdowns kind of February timeframe due to warm weather. But Teton Pass in particular, uh, I know operated a lot more days than it has already this year. So yeah, it's, it's a bad year. Not sure what we're gonna be doing yet. Have you missed Christmas week before? We have, not normally. I, I've been involved with this ski area since 99 when I, um, came out to Shoto and went to high school here and got involved back in those days. And I think in those 20 plus years, you know, maybe two or three times we've missed Christmas week, but usually open like right after Christmas, 28th, 29th. I know some of those dates. We've also had openings as early as Thanksgiving. So a, a typical year, I try to have everything ready, prepped and staff trained by the first week of December. And that's more often than not, the first or second week of December, we sort of align with the rest of the state that doesn't have snowmaking. And that that's a, a good guess anyway. And so, yeah, whatever's happening right now is just not working. The, the state is dry. How, how do you stay up mentally during a time like this, Charles? Because it's, you can't really do anything but sit and wait. It, how do you calculate whether this is just an anomaly and talk yourself through it because when it's good it seems like it'll always be good and when it's bad it seems like it'll always be bad it's just sort of the nature of skiing i mean how do you stay optimistic how do you stay focused on the long term when you're sitting here on january 29th and we're recording this and you've operated three or four days right um i am struggling and you know to be mm -hmm. frank i I have reached out, you know, to a lot of colleagues and friends I have at other ski areas and, you know, try to try to find a, a shoulder to lean on just to talk through it because it is a tough position to be in. Uh, it is an anomaly, but at the same time, you know, I was texting with a buddy of mine who is kind of high up at Stevens Pass, Washington, and their forecast for the next 10 days is rain. And they are, you know, maybe not as well versed in something like this, but they talk about like, you know, he mentioned to me every 10 years, they have a season like this and that's the Pacific Northwest. And that's just the reality out there. The freezing levels don't always line up with the, the snow or the mountain. So for us, if we go back to 20, 2004, five season, you know, that's like a 20 year anomaly cycle. And you kind of chalk it up to the fact that this is something that we should all prepare for in the West, maybe not as much as the Midwest and the East, as far as being hundred percent reliant on snowmaking, but we have to understand that not every year is going to be like the last 10 years and you get complacent and you start to hedge bets and think that, you know, your season pass sales and everything's going to just continue to climb. But this year is going to put it all in perspective and make a lot of people realize that you know, it might be a good idea to keep some retained earnings and just expect that there's going to be a bad season every once in a while and try to be prepared for it. But yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of loss and hope just because the weather is completely out of my control. And I've realized through a lot of things in life, you just don't want to waste time stressing about things that are out of your control. 
So I want to talk about those relationships a little bit with the other ski areas. Montana ski area operators from, I've been told this by multiple people, are it's a pretty tight group, even though it's a pretty big state and you're pretty spread out and there's not that many ski areas in the state. And Bridger Bowl and Showdown, while you were unable to open, both welcomed your pass holders with some restrictions and limited numbers of days. Talk about your relationship in general with the other operators in Montana, Charles, and with those two in particular, and how those help you in times like this when things aren't going so well, maybe get perspective and get a little bit of support, not, not, not only with your past holders, but just, you know, some moral support and some mental support as well. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. It is a small group, tight knit. There's 15 ski areas that are in the state that are all public, one private. And we have an organization called the Montana Ski Area Association, which is basically a group of all of us that get together twice a year. It's a nonprofit. I'm on the board. Uh, a number of other folks are on the board. It's kind of a mix of, you know, owners, operators, sort of marketing CEO and, and those type of people typically aren't in attendance. But for the small ski areas, it's, it's usually all the same person uh, every year. And we've gotten to know each other. It's not always been kind of chummy, small, uh, small town, like everybody gets along. I think there's been some history in that group of tough times. But in recent five, 10 years, since I've gotten involved, some younger folks have moved up into the ranks and we all seem to get along and have a similar vision for what we want in the state of Montana. And I think that with those connections, uh, with those meetings that we have every year, we've realized it's way better to work together than to try to compete for the same customers. Um, we'd all rather make the pizza bigger than to try to get a bigger piece ourselves. And so, yeah, Bridger Bowl, we've uh, benefited tremendously from their success because they, you know, a classic example here is, you know, they will buy a used snowcat from the Yellowstone Club, which has leased it for four years and put some hours on it, but it's still good condition and they have a budget to be able to afford that. And then they'll take their oldest snowcat that has, you know, 10,000 hours and they're ready to be done with it and they'll sell it to a ski area like us. And so we're using an old retired Bridger Bowl snowcat that we got for an affordable price that makes it so that we can actually have a decent piece of equipment. And that sort of stuff happens all over the industry. It's not just Montana, but certainly the state is small enough and we all struggle hard enough that we realize that we got to help each other out. And how about Showdown? They also jumped in with some free tickets. What's your relationship like with that ski area? Yeah, it's great. They, uh, yeah, they're kind of our neighbors to the Southeast and we kind of share the same, I guess, market in some ways, but they are our, our big brother, I guess, so to speak. They're in a different mountain range, but similar distance to the, the city of Great Falls, which is about 60,000 people. It's awesome to have a neighbor like that that's being so neighborly to offer reciprocation for our season pass holders when our pass holders are unable to get out and slide on the snow. It's a, it's a huge benefit for us. I mean, we start to think about how our pass holders feel when we're not operating and whether or not they're going to be interested in buying a pass the next year. And it, it really helps when you can give them something, you know, and that's something for us has been that reciprocation at Showdown and at Bridger. And, you know, I, I would go as far as to say that all the Montana ski areas 
would really be willing to do that for all the other Montana ski areas. It wasn't wasn't just uh, those two. There was some behind the scenes stuff too, where you know everyone's kind of looking out for each other, and they stepped up and made it public, and that was, was a big move on their part. And a history there. We've we've tried to do something similar. We're obviously the little guy here, so we can't we can't offer as much as they do. But showdown a few years back lost power on a on a Saturday in the middle of the winter when they were expecting a good crowd and we opened up our slopes for their pass holders and you know it was sort of one of those deals where you just feel bad because families you know parents are telling their kids they're going skiing on Saturday the kids get all ready and amped up and they're on their way to the ski hill and then they get the announcement that it's closed it's just heartbreaking and you know I'm a father now got a little kid I understand what that's like and I think the more we can do to just kind of share the love and get people out skiing, it, it just works. Montana's cool like that. So rough start, but you put your head down and you're still going and trying to make a season out of it. Sleeping Giant, which is a similar ski area to yours in that it's pretty remote, pretty small. It, it has a new, younger, energetic owner who's doing the best he can. But he, Nick Piazza is his name, and he finally called the season off last week or the week before. And he really said that, you know, the same situation as you, he's just not getting snow. And the biggest factor for him, according to the note he sent out to pass holders was we just can't keep the seasonal staff because there's already, there's a hard place to get people to come to work. And then we just keep not being able to offer them work. Eventually we just can't keep them around. I mean, I would imagine you're in a similar situation and I know you still have a now hiring staffing up sign on your social and on your website. So how are you navigating this challenge here, Charles, of of trying to staff up when I imagine that's always hard, but then extra hard this year when you just are not operating that many days? Yeah, I, I think that's the impossible thing of the ski industry. I mean, even the big ski areas, you look at all the J1 visa programs and ways in which they provide housing and, and other benefits to try to sell it because staffing a ski area is one of the hardest things we do and on a year like this it's even harder i think that the christmas holiday season is often the time where we can work out a lot of those shortfalls and those kinks you know we'll have college students come home to their small town and we can pull from that some of those are former employees that have gone on to work you know at other ski areas but they're back home for the holidays so we get them up working in the kitchen working in the rental shop working lifts and then you know through that time we can get a strong enough core that we can start pulling in the last few remaining i've never felt that we've been fully staffed up you know that's the, the goal is to have about 30 employees up here and i come short of that every year but we make up for it we figure it out this year it was a rough start with a really small group of returning employees and trying to figure out how we could even do just a bare minimum operation was was challenging and then every year i get a little bit of a surprise with pulling it off at the last minute you know the rabbit out of the hat sort of thing but what i'd say with the sleeping giant because i read that announcement and i I, I just felt the blow, you know, to my gut because I, you know, ha I'm having all those same thoughts this week in particular is causing me to have many of those same thoughts. And it is for those that don't run and operate ski areas, it is a very challenging job, uh, some more challenging than others. And depending on the season, you know, you can have really hard, 
hard challenges. This year for us, I'm kind of going week by week, just trying to figure out what can we do. Last weekend, we just operated Saturday. And that was partly due to the snow because we have such a limited base. I can't go out and groom it every night. It's just not going to hold up to that. And also, I don't have enough staff on a Friday to really pull off everything I want to do. So it's sort of death by a million cuts. And then for Sleeping Giant to say that the staffing part was really what it was, I think it's in a lot of cases, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. You have a, a whole bunch of other things that are equally as hard. And the snowpack being the main one right now for a lot of us. And if you can squeak through, a lot of skiers in Montana are operating right now, but you have to start to then question the business. Are you even making money? Last Saturday, we, we lost money, you know, and to be totally honest, it was, it was a, a rough realization of how bad things really are for us. We, we opened up for Saturday, expected folks to come up, have lunch, you know, maybe not ski all that much because conditions aren't awesome, but at least to show up. And it just wasn't the case. You know, it's 50 degrees down in town and sunny and people are not trending towards ski slopes. <laughs> so, so what's kept you going here, Charles? Is it a sense of pride? Is it a sense of mission? Is it, it's just that important for you to offer this to the community and people who do want it, it because you could shut it down and say, you know what, we just can't do it. It's just one of those years. What has kept you going? What what has kept you from making that call when we're sitting here at the end of January and, and you've only been able to spin the lifts, I think, four days? Yeah. Yep. You're right. It is. It's been four days. We, I'm extremely stubborn. That's part of it. Prideful, for sure. I do feel a sense of obligation to try to do what I can for the people that committed to buying passes this year. It's not saying that the other places that have shut down didn't feel those things as well. They, they definitely did. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're weighing that decision every day. And yesterday we got rain and this week is supposed to be fifties and our snowpack's actually gone right now. I mean, we, I'm looking outside, we couldn't operate this coming. We are not going to be able to operate this coming weekend. And so there's some cold temps supposedly starting Friday into Saturday. February has some promise according to some longer term forecasts. And um, if we can hang on by our fingernails and, and make it make sense, we will. But another couple of weekends like last weekend where we do everything we can and the, the numbers don't pencil, uh, we will be going the way of Sleeping Giant and just calling it a wash for the season. I don't want to preempt that and say that that's the, the plan, but that's maybe plan C at this point. And we're going to do our best. It's, it's unprecedented. We have not dealt with a season this bad. Like I said, most years in the last 20 that I've been here have been open in December and operated till April. So it looks bad right now. And I'd imagine it feels really bad right now. But let's, let's get out of the present moment for a, for a minute because Teton Pass has evolved quite a bit over time and you have been part of some big improvements. So take us back in time here, Charles. You said you first arrived at the ski area in 1999. What was Teton Pass like at the time? And then take us up to 2010 when Nick Wood bought the ski area and, and how it's evolved since you first encountered it to what it is today. Sure. In 99, it was owned by a group of six locals 
that picked it up basically out of a bank sale. And their only hope was to just keep it running. And they did their best. It was, you know, uh, farmers, ranchers, lawyers, um, small business owners from town that all had other jobs. And they grouped up and figured out a way to make it go. And so back then, it wasn't strictly volunteerism, but there was a lot of a lot of volunteerism going on. Their payroll was not, you know, what it is today. And they did what they could to make it work. And so it was all original equipment with the chairlift and the lodge was pretty sparse. You know, they would typically have one type of beer on tap with just a beer and wine license and heated the place 100% with wood stoves. They had an old LMC snow cat that was breaking down all the time. And yeah, it was just kind of the, the local town hill. Uh, it serves a bunch of little small farm towns. We have a couple of dozen of them dotted along the Rocky Mountain front here. And this is where the kids learn to ski. And without it, you know, when this place has been closed over various years, it's not like these kids are going over to Whitefish or making the trek all the way down to Showdown all the time. They just don't learn to ski. And that's that's sort of the reality. And that's maybe part of the the soul of what drives me to want to do this is there's there's a community here that without this place doesn't have another option. It's just too far to travel to go do it or too expensive. So yeah, I came in 99 and that was what the reality was through high school. I went to college in Montana. I always came back here and ski patrolled, pro patrolled down at Discovery Basin through college is where I went to school down in Butte. And then the New Zealander came in and bought it in 2010 and I think had some big dreams and visions and spent some money, put the effort in to make some big changes here. Our old 1973 double chairlift got a pretty good upgrade, converted from a diesel drive to an electric and got a big generator to power it and then made improvements in the lodge and did a little bit of an expansion as far as terrain goes to the north. We got a magic carpet or should say a sun kid wonder carpet conveyor lift for the bunny hill took out an old handle toe and bought some new used equipment as far as snow cats and road plows etc so he put money into it he put attention into it it sounded like he had some vision nonetheless wood ended up closing the ski area in 2017 what ultimately forced that decision yeah there's a multitude of reasons i would say he came in with a handful of other investors in 2010, saw, saw a place that had potential. He's from New Zealand, so maybe a little bit of a unique perspective on, on what it could be versus what a traditional American ski area would be. And tried pretty hard over the course of those seven years of ownership to make it work. And I came on board and managed it for him. He was sort of remote for the remaining or the, the last five years. He was a remote owner and I did what we could to try to bring it around and make it make some money. And I think at the end of the day, he and his investors had just not seen the payout that they were hoping for. So ultimately decided to put it up for sale. And in that time that it was for sale, it sat idle. They, they chose not to operate and 
it sat idle for two seasons without operating. What was your reaction when he made that decision to close it? And how did it feel to live through that? Because you're, this is a place you'd had a couple decades with at that point and have been running and, and were obviously, it meant a lot to you. So just what was your reaction and, and what was that like, that limbo period between when he closed it in 2017 and when you bought it two years later? Yeah, it was uh, strange times. I was sort of hanging on as sort of a caretaker still with roots in this community and trying to figure out what the solution would be. You know, initially it wasn't for me to try to buy it. You know, I was thinking maybe somebody else with some means was going to come in and purchase it and I could be available to help pass the torch or even be available to help run it if they were looking for somebody to run it. And we sort of sat on that for a year and entertained some very kind of outlier tire kicker type people that might have almost been able to do it. But oftentimes they were looking for something that this place is not, you know, looking for an investment, looking for a retirement job, you know, just all the things that it was not. And they'd come and look at it and see the reality of how hard it is and the challenges that it faces and never really be able to make a true offer. And so it was in that second year that it was closed where I started to kind of think about what it could look like if I did come up with a reasonable amount of money to make an offer and try to make a go of it. Because I was sort of uniquely positioned in having the background knowledge and what it actually takes to run it. I, like you said, been the general manager for the previous five years and knew the numbers, knew what it took, knew how to do it and just didn't have the capital to really pull it off until, you know, I finally came up with a half-cocked idea, I guess, and scrapped together a plan and made an offer. So reports at the time, Contemporary Media Reports, noted that Wood had put the scary up for sale for around $3 million and that you had bought it for 375000 Now, we were talking offline before this conversation about bad information. So reducing the price from $3 million to 375000 seems like a pretty dramatic jump. So can you clear this up for us? What can you tell us about that sales process and the price? Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, you can go back and look at some of the other numbers too which are pretty interesting like when he bought it in 2010 i think it was on it was listed for around 300,000 back then and you know people see those numbers and they think well that's less than a single family home in most of the cities in montana and you could have bought, bought a ski area for that but i think most people don't realize what you're buying is not what people envision when when you think of a ski area um, you know we're 100% on forest service lease land so you're buying buildings and equipment and a you know, special use permit that has some value and a business that hadn't really been in the black. And so from a business value standpoint, it's, uh, it's worth what somebody will pay for it. And when Nick put it on the market, I, I recall that the initial list price was 1.2 million. And I think that some of that was based off of the amount of money that he had put in with a lot of his investors and just an attempt at trying to recoup what he could. And so, you know, he bought it for a few hundred thousand and then put in a bunch, you know, with, with the renovations that he did on the chairlift, 
I know that was hundreds of thousands of dollars. The brand new Sunkid Magic Carpet conveyor lift was a, over a hundred. The renovations to the lodge and the newer used snowcats. Um, he bought an Avalancher and all new patrol toboggans and snowmobiles, etc. So, I mean, he wasn't off base with his asking price. It's just that when people came to look at it, those those numbers didn't pencil. And so it took a unique person and it took time for that number to come down. And after the first year of it sitting, he did lower the price on the listing down to, I think, half of that. So it was like 600,000. And I think it stayed there at that price until I was able to come in and make an offer. And I'll say that I paid less than that, but it basically took, you know, the market to realize what it was worth. And with without being able to show books that are consistently in the black and, you know, revenue stream of somebody owning it and succeeding, you have to look at what what it, what would it be worth if you parted it out and liquidated, right? Because that's really the value at the end of the day. And the buildings aren't worth anything because you can't relocate them. So it's it's an old used chairlift from the 70s and a bunch of equipment. So yeah, I don't know. It sort of worked out, but there was other possibilities and you might get into that with some of your questioning with regards to the the feasibility study that went on and other people that were kind of interested in making a go of it. There's an additional complication here in that you don't necessarily inherit that special use permit from the Forest Service. You have to actually reapply with a new owner. What was that process like? Was that pretty smooth out west where in, in with your local forest service officials it was incredibly painful and it didn't really? it didn't need to be um okay it just yeah and i i won't necessarily dig too deep into that scar but the ownership was held by a corporation and i purchased 100 percent of the corporation and so in a lot of ways i bought the entity that owned all the assets. And when the Forest Service looks at that, you know, they have their interpretation of what a, a sale agreement looks like and what needs to happen. And so we uh, tried our best to make that process go smoothly. And in the end, it took four years for me to see a permit with my name on it. And other ski areas in Montana that had transferred sale within that time frame happened in less than six months, Maverick Mountain being one of them, and then Showdown in 2021 when they uh, transferred from George to his daughter. And so, yeah, it's just a bizarre set of circumstances. The Forest Service Agency does not do permit transfers and or sales of ski areas all that often, and ours in particular hadn't, um, hadn't done one in a while. And so, it kind of got hung up in a lot of weird ways. But that being said, yeah, we, we bought it and then went through that process. I've learned a lot since then. And we are now sitting with a, a renewed 40-year term on a ski area special use permit here on our forest. So while you're dealing with all that paperwork, you have to get the ski area back up and running after it's been idle for a couple of years. And you said you were a caretaker. So I imagine you were pretty familiar with where all the bodies were buried and, and what needed to be done and had been on site at least somewhat to, to make sure things didn't fall apart. But nonetheless, it's always a big process to turn that light switch back on after a couple of years. What did it take 
to get tea time pass running again after it had been shut down for several years? Yeah, it took a, took a bit. And I am very, I guess, cognizant. And when I see these other skiers trying to resurface that have been sitting idle for years, I um, understand that completely. It's a process. Uh, one thing in particular, uh, ANSI B77, which you know regulates all the tramway rules, stipulates that any lift that's been sitting idle for a two-year period or more uh, must go through basically a, a brand new acceptance test. So not only uh, are we required you know, to do our seven-year uh, dynamic load testing on the chairlifts, but when a new lift goes in or a relocation occurs, you have to go through a full acceptance test on that lift, uh, which is a little bit more stringent, involves a bit of engineering and certainly some oversight. And so because it happened to be two calendar years, even though we had been up here caretaking and making sure that things were still in good service, uh, we did have to go through that process with the lift and the carpet. And with that, you know, working through uh, insurance company and forest service and, and all those things. I thought Montana didn't have a state tramway board. How were the chairlifts actually regulated there? Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you <laughs> asking that question because that's actually a, <laughs> A pretty hot topic right now with some of the recent things that have happened in the state and there used to be a tramway board there currently is not there's certainly a public perception of what it should or shouldn't have and then there's the reality and i think that nobody's opposed to the theory of a tramway board in the state it seems like a great idea to have some oversight from a state agency however in order to do that successfully, it's actually quite challenging to find the right people that have the right motivations to ensure that all those things that are getting checked are done by the people that have experience and that um, are helpful to the industry. And I could go on and on about some of the history. It's, it's mostly third hand from older generations that have told me about the troubles with the old tramway board, but it was not a good situation and they dissolved it sometime, I think, in the early 2000s. And um, since then, we are basically doing what we would do anyway if we did have a tramway board, which is all the same stuff. And the reality is we're governed by the ANSI B77 book. And that book is every lift in North America or in the U.S., has to abide by that. And so the, the maintenance regulations and the standards are created and we have to abide by that. And if you're on Forest Service land, you have Forest Service oversight on that. And if you're on BLM land, you have BLM oversight. And if you're on private, you have insurance company oversight. And so we get inspected every year by our insurance company and the Forest Service has the you know national ropeway team that gets involved if there's things that can't be resolved. And so I think in a lot of ways, a tramway board really would not change anything for us and how we do business, but it does in some ways look bad because the public sees other industries that have regulation at a state level and thinks, why wouldn't we have that? And why would we not want that? But I think some of those problems come from having qualified folks that are specialized in tramways. It's, there's not a lot of us out there, you know? How much of that, Charles, is kind of your personal take and how much of that syncs with 
any official position the Montana Ski Area Association, I, I'm asking you as a board member, oh. might have on that and, and whether they support the notion of a tramway board with the state legislature, for example. I should clarify that I don't want any of this to be taken as an official position by the Montana Ski Area Association or me as a board member. This is this is all personal feelings and opinions. I think that each individual ski area owner and operator in Montana has has a take on it. I kind of have a general sense and a feeling about what we all would or wouldn't want, but I certainly don't want to come off as being a representative to, on this podcast today to give my opinion on that. But yeah, it's it's interesting. You know, I think that some states do it really well. Uh, we've we've talked about it, me and some other ski areas, uh, about how Utah seems to have a tramway board that works pretty well. And so there's places in which it could make a lot of sense and give credibility. But I also, I think as an owner operator who's been through it and done the maintenance and gotten inspected by insurance companies and the Forest Service, having another person essentially doing the same thing doesn't benefit. And in a lot of ways, that was what led to some of the problems with the thing in the past is, and and you see this in other states that have tramway boards is, you know, it's not uncommon for the state agency to come up with a punch list of things that differs from what the insurance company sees. And you get two different groups telling you two different things. And that ANSI code book is the code book, but it can be interpreted many different ways. And you talk to the people that are even on that board that create that code book and they all don't agree. And so <laughs> at the end of the day, it's, it's a really tough thing to try to pin down. It's not everything's black and white, you know? It, it, it's always amazing. The, once you dig just a couple layers down, how complex it is to run a ski area. And, you know, we just spent five minutes talking about just one piece of it, which is just getting your chairlifts back up and running or, or your lifts back up and running. You had a, a lot of pieces to deal with. There was a generator that wasn't working. There was a diesel fuel spill that had happened under previous ownership. And I believe when you were general manager. So talk about those big projects. And I guess the common theme here, it sounds like you're off the grid and you're operating all on generators. So just talk about the challenges there and, and how you reconciled all that. Yeah, it just, uh, you know, just like building a chairlift, it seems like this crazy, complex, difficult thing, but you start putting it together one piece at a time. And by the end, you're done with it. And I think I'm an in engineer by training and have that sort of mindset of sort of logical piece by piece. If you have a big, complex problem, you break it down into smaller problems and just figure out one thing at a time. And um, yeah, we did inherit some of those things. You know, the, the diesel fuel cleanup was part of it. We, we had an overfill event. So because we're on generator power up here, we use diesel fuel to power a lot of the electrical components. And while fueling a generator, the old style system did not have automatic shutoffs on the um, nozzle. And so it got overfilled and ultimately created a contamination event. And so Montana Department of Environmental Quality sort of oversees the cleanup of things like that. And we worked with the Forest Service, the DEQ, as well as a consulting engineer to come up with a plan to basically remediate. And um, that was all performed uh, two years ago. And we've been working with 
Montana DEQ as well as the testing labs to you know put in monitoring wells and soil sampling etc to make sure that we did the did the job to the level that needed to be done and and that'll be ongoing for a few more years just to you know follow up on it make sure it's all good but it's tough you know those things happen and they need to be cleaned up and it was something that we didn't know the extent of it when it had happened and uh, the state law state, you know, anything over 25 gallons needs to be reported. And there's no fuel measuring devices on a lot of these bulk tanks at ski areas and farms and ranches. And you just have X number of gallons in the tank and it's hard to measure exactly what might've spilled. And so we basically had to come up with a plan to remediate everything that was there. And that may have included previous events that had happened dozens of years ago, you know, but we just, you dig until you don't find anything anymore and you remove everything that's there that you can. So, so are you off the grid up there? And, and if so, is there any possibility of getting electrical power? Or are you kind of stuck with this diesel infrastructure? Yep. We're off the grid. We are 11 miles from three, three phase power, which is the type of power we'd need to move a chairlift. And we're about six and a half miles from single phase power. And the local power authority is a, uh, co-op. And when we've asked that question of whether or not it would be possible to get power up here, it's basically getting laughed at. It would be an expense that we would need to stomach. And that quickly goes into millions of dollars when you talk about trying to trench power into a very rocky uh, roadbed to get it up here through eight miles of national forest. And so I think that we've all kind of but realized that that's off the table. And um, in some ways, I I know it's a challenge. It's an added cost and expense in the maintenance and upkeep and the having to turn it on and turn it off and all the parts of it that make my life a lot harder. But it also is a saving grace when I look at some other skiers that lose power and they can't do anything about it. You know, wintertime overhead lines, icing events, trees coming down all those things that play into another big uncontrollable thing that now affects your ski area on Christmas day, you know? And so we generate our own power and we just are trying to build out a robust system so that that can be as reliable as possible. And recently purchased some newer equipment, used equipment, obviously, but newer to us and more redundancy in our systems. And so we have, we have a 60 KW generator that runs the small, parts of things like just the buildings and the base area. And then we have a 250 KW diesel generator that runs all that plus the lifts. So we can essentially run the big generator during the, the nine to four chairlift time. And then in the evenings, we can switch over to a smaller generator, be a little bit more fuel efficient. So lots of pieces and parts. You did finally get the place back open in I believe it was in early 2020, which which is its own kind of crazy timing that we can talk about. But you finally get the place open again. What was the local reaction like? And what is your local population? Because you mentioned Great Falls, about 60,000 people. That's two hours away. They are a little closer to Great Divide, and I'm not sure how far away Showdown is. So where do you mostly draw from? And what was that reaction like when people got their local bump back in 2020? Yeah, a lot of stoke. We... Uh, sort of 
got open with pretty little fanfare, trying to fly a little bit under the radar, not promise too much. It was, you know, a resurgence after being shut down. And so there's the expectation that we might not be able to hit every home run. And so I kind of went into it a little bit quietly and didn't advertise and announce anything too big and overpromise anything. And so sort of entered into the season pretty, pretty well, uh, you know, not a lot of big season pass sales or anything like that, but we did get open and it was right at the end of December that year, 2019. And I had bought it in August of 2019 when I finally closed the deal. So didn't have a whole ton of time to get it all ready. And like you said, having to do all that stuff with the lift, ensuring that we could get all that done first. But yeah, our population is small. Uh, the local town that's 30 miles away is less than 2,000 people. And we're 88 miles from Great Falls, which is 60,000. And then for the most part, I'd say 80% of our skier traffic is the small towns around here that are all between 500 and 3,000 people. So it's a, it's a different scale. We, you know, for what we're doing is, is not <laughs> what some of these medium to large ski areas are doing. And we recognize that fully and we understand it. The, the Great Falls community tends towards showdown and I'd say lesser towards Great Divide. Great Divide has Helena about 20 minutes away. So that's their big goal. And we tend to operate kind of on the fringes and occasionally we'll, we'll see the Great Falls community coming out this way. But a lot of that traffic is going south and east into the showdown ski area. So talk about your relationship with those little towns. I imagine you spend some time maybe with the local school districts trying to make sure that all those kids in those little towns have the opportunity to ski. I, I realize you're a, a Friday through Sunday operation, so maybe it's not buses coming up from the school day necessarily, but enabling that. But I, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. So just talk about your relationship with those local populations, how important those are and how you maintain those in a way that Teton Pass is available to them and they're going to support it. Yeah, we we do actually do a lot of that busing and, and school program stuff. We have about 50 different schools that uh, last year we were able to fit in on Fridays. And we actually added Mondays in February last year because we were filling up every Friday we had available. Oh, cool. And so nice. we can outfit about 100 kids through our rental shop with the gear that we have. And I say 50 schools, but some of those schools are 12 kids. And so on those days, we'll have three schools come up and it'll be 50 kids, but from three different places, you know, and some of it's K through eight. Um, they bring the whole school. Some of it like local Shoto, they'll bring the fifth graders, they'll bring the sixth graders and then the seventh and eighth will be, you know, up here as well. And they'll bust them up, you know, we'll have pretty big school days and that was a pretty good part of our Friday business. I wouldn't say we could make money on Fridays without it. And it also is the way in which you get more skiers, just teaching them when they're young. And uh, like I said before, without this place operating, it does make it harder for those communities to really find a place that's affordable and, and be able to have a field trip that makes sense without driving for hours on end. So you're drawing from a pretty spare population, but it sounds like you're working hard to make sure that they have access to the place. The previous owner did a conducted a study with the SE Group, which is a ski area planning company, 
And they found that Teton Pass drew around 6,000 skier visits annually between 2012 and 2017, which is, you know, an annual number that's a third of what, say, like Copper Mountain might have on a Saturday, right, in, in January. So, you know, but different operation, different different sort of business. And that study determined that Teton Pass would need to get to around 20,000 skier visits annually to reach financial sustainability. I realize that this is a bad time to ask you that question, given the, <laughs> given the season you've had so far, but how have the last few years trended here, Charles? Are, are you finding ways to increase that number? Are you staying around 6,000? Yeah, no, that's a tough question. Um, yeah. I, uh, I'm smiling because there's a lot in that. And, um, just minor correction that the SE group study was uh, part of a different thing um, that happened. And in, in that interim time when the skier was for sale, the um, there was a local group that had kind of looked into the possibility of a co-op coming together to try to buy it. And they went through a state grant writing process to get a feasibility study performed. And the SE group was chosen uh, by that uh, feasibility study group uh, with the co-op in mind and i was sort of outside of that group and when they came in and did their study they didn't really find and or tap into people that had previously been involved with the ski area so it was a pretty high level overlook at like a general ski area in a general region with kind of folks from colorado looking at a, a place on a map and i don't think that even a site visit was really done and or any conversations with me or any of the previous actual managers and operators. So all that to say that the results of that study left out a lot of nuance that exists here on the ground. And I sort of um, take that all with a grain of salt because I, I sort of feel like not that I'm able to navigate these waters any better than anyone else, but that I, I knew the reality of what it is up here. And I, I know that it's thin razor margins and that it's going to be a challenge and it's not going to be my big retirement plan to grow this place and sell it for millions of dollars. I think that what I see here is a way for a family such as myself and my family to be able to have a life on a place we love to operate a ski area, to hopefully grow it to the point of being in the black and sustainable and keep it here for generations to come so that my kids have a place to ski and their kids have a place to ski. And we, we love the terrain. We love the snow that we get. We love the, the community that skis here and supports it. And so as long as we can do that and keep the, the place open, that's the goal. And we have been doing that, you know, 2019, 2020, when I bought it, we went into that first year totally got our legs kicked out from under us with COVID happening and suffered some losses and figured out our way to get scrappy and make it work. And then since that point, we've just been trying to grow and build and we had a ton of momentum. I couldn't believe the amount that we were able to squeeze out of this place last season by number of operating days, number of powder days, just the sheer amount of stoke and energy that was here. We did a lot last season. And so <laughs> That all, you know, is pretty contrasting to what we're seeing here this year, but um, I, I can't control that, you know, and I, I'd be 
driving myself insane to think that I could I could fix the problem that we're seeing here this year. Do you know off the top of your head how many days you had last year, operating days? Yeah, last year we operated 66 days total. We hit it earlier. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. We did Mondays in February and then the holiday spell through Christmas to New Year's. We open every day except Christmas Day. So as long as we get open before Christmas and we can go through what was our permit deadline of April 15th, we were always in that 60 to 70 days, which is enough to make it work. And I'm not paying myself, but we're paying a bunch of staff members up here and we're putting a little bit of money into all the equipment and we're able to get all the maintenance done in the summer. And I think that in order to really get beyond that, like 7,000, like we did 7,000 visits last year, if we, if we were to try to get beyond that, we would need to grow in terrain and uh, chairlift options. I think that given the size of the ski area and the number of lifts that we have, this place is not um, more of an attraction than it was the previous year. So you're not gonna see an improvement in those numbers until we could actually grow and expand. And that's gonna take some time because obviously these things cost money. And if you're operating on the margins and especially on a bad year like this, you're not gonna have capital, so. Well, you're not afraid to try new things. You had this great quote in this publication, The Inlander, a few years ago as you were starting the place back up. It was, quote, now is not the time for changing course and doing a bunch of weird stuff and trying out new ideas, or or maybe now is the time. What have been some of those ideas and, and what has worked for you? Yeah, that, that quote, I read that. I, I think it, the context of that was basically... The, the previous owner, the New Zealand guy, had tried a lot of things that were a little bit weird. And we had been through some kind of weird roller coaster times here in this community, saw some things that a little bit outside of normal. Uh, you know, he had come in and tried to really turn this place around and operate more days of the week and to run a shuttle service from Shoto up to here to try to get people to come. Uh, the hope was to, you know, do all these extra things and and make it all different and appealing and attractive and some of the employees that had been through that with me had kind of experienced that wild ride and and so uh, i think the context of that quote was the first year i opened it i wasn't going to try to do too many weird Mm -hmm. we were going to try to get back to just running the ski hill trying to get to the core of what we do do well and make sure we do the the minimum parts well but yeah we've i mean We've hosted a randonnée race, like a ski mountaineering race since 2012 that has grown in popularity and, and has actually grown to the point where we're doing the Montana State Championship race up here. And that's that's been a really cool, unique thing that you don't see at another small ski area like us. You know, we've had suppers up here, kind of plated dinners, do some really fancy stuff with the lodge that we have and bussing people up and, you know, hosting weddings during the wintertime, things like that. And we've played around with the terrain that we have above the chairlift in terms of doing pseudo guided type of terrain, getting new people out on skis and skins that haven't done it before and that really would like to do it, but don't have the experience. And we just have kind of a unique thing up here. It's a beautiful landscape. It's, it's Alpine in a lot of ways you get, get to uh, see something that a lot of these other smaller ski areas don't actually have which is not just side country but true backcountry and um, yeah we kind of we see ourselves as a little bit of a different a different thing that we might be able to turn into something at some point i mean it's just a gorgeous place 
for anyone who hasn't seen it. And so the terrain you're talking about to set this up for the listeners, your chairlift goes partway up the mountain and then there's a whole big peak above it. How much terrain is actually up there, Charles? And could that ever be lift served? I know we're talking pie in the sky here because that'd be very expensive, but is that in your permit area? Kind of take us through what the potential here is. Getting back to your comment earlier that to significantly grow skier numbers and stabilize the business at some point, it might require some sort of dramatic terrain, terrain expansion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and ultimately all of those things that you just kind of hit on are a big part of the reason that I'm here. I strive to to do something with that and to to see the potential in a place. And I've you know, I could probably go work at another ski area or find another way of life that would make me more money and or provide more stability for my family and or, you know, any number of things that make more sense. But a big draw is I see potential. I see potential here in the fact that we are remote, we're off grid, we have this terrain that is unlike a lot of other places. And I'm a skier at heart. I love this stuff. And so when I look at that, I have big wide eyes and, you know, kind of shit eating grin on my face. And I like to get out and explore. So yeah, that terrain up there we have above the chairlift is about 1300 vertical. And the reason that exists is because the chairlift at the time that they installed it, they put it up as high as they could without getting into avalanche terrain. And it's kind of amazing that they were able to do that in 1973 when the chairlift was put in to understand that any further up and it would have been a problematic thing. So they built up as high as they could, kind of took advantage of some of these lower slopes on the flanks of this peak that is not named and built runs that were intermediate to beginner and left a lot of that steep exposed stuff untouched. And so you had mentioned 400 acres in the intro, and that technically is our special use permit. And the permit goes all the way to the summit of that peak. So if you go from the summit down both of the ridge lines to where we kind of currently have our patrol boundary, that's the 400 acres. So the stuff that we're skiing on right now is only about half of that. And so you know, we're sort of overselling ourselves by saying 400 acres. It's really not that much skiable from lift serve, but we do get people coming up every weekend. And when we have the ability, we open up that terrain and let people hike and skin up and ski it all. But that comes with a bunch of challenges that, you know, go into the avalanche forecasting that we do and the mitigation work that we do and the, uh, the need for us to control that terrain up there. And that poses a bunch of challenges for being able to put lifts in. So we get a bunch of wind on the Rocky Mountain front. We typically have a shallower snowpack than many of the other kind of Western ski areas. They would kind of categorize our snowpack as continental, more similar to the Colorado front range. It's cold and dry and it harbors weak layers long-term for entire seasons. And so we get that wind, we get the hard slabs, we get all the cold weak layers and you put a chairlift into terrain like that and you start dropping people off and you're asking for trouble. And not only that, 
you'd be limiting the number of days you could run by putting it up on an exposed ridge that is out of avalanche terrain because the high winds would be shutting us down as well. So I think that for all those reasons, we don't see putting a chairlift up to a summit point as an option that's really sensible. Um, of course, it's it's one of the sexier things that people think about when they come and look at it because they, they want to go ski that without having to put the work in. Right. But, <laughs> but it just doesn't pencil. And uh, more, rea more realistically, there's two lower points, which there's possible lift locations, which would bring you to basically tree line. And at, at that point, you could possibly run a lift in a lot of days without being shut down for wind, um, and not exposing people to extreme avalanche problems. But it's it's unique. It's a different thing. You know, we we often think about like the ridge at Bridger Bowl, you know, prior to them putting in slushmans and having the quantity of skiers that are up there hiking that ridge every day and skier compacting all that terrain, they were faced with much of the same problem when it was low skier traffic. They had limited budget for mitigation work and they saw a big hazard of avalanches. It, it created this situation that we're still in, how do you allow people to go ski in terrain that might cause an avalanche when you know for certain that you can't be 100% that, that it's safe? And so you start implementing mandatory beacon sho shovel probe and a partner rules. You, uh, you know, start doing different types of sweeps at the end of the day. You have sign in, sign out forms, that kind of stuff. And we're still in that position I could never mitigate the avalanche hazard to the point where I could tell people it's 100% safe. I mean, and no ski patroller can. If you're honest with yourself, you do everything you can to try to minimize it to a certain level and and then you open the terrain. And, and I think that every ski area that's out there doing mitigation work is doing their best and trying to make sure that these things don't happen. But it's a it's a reality for us and we don't we don't take that lightly. And so that terrain up there is, it's a handful. We have two slide paths, um, primarily one that stems from right underneath the peak and then one that's kind of that big open bowl to the north. And each one of those slide paths, and I say this without any joking, you know, they're as big as Marx and Lennon at Big Sky. And we see avalanches that slide as big as those slides will go. and. If that kind of puts it into perspective, you know, we're a small little mom and pop ski area with, you know, maybe 100 skiers on a Saturday, 200 on a really busy Saturday. And we're having to manage avalanche terrain as big as Marks and Lennon and doing so on a, a shoestring budget without a lift to get our patrollers up there to do the work. <laughs> and so <laughs> it just adds, you know, it's like a comical level of, of work that goes into it, but we love it. And it's half the reason we're here. Yeah, it's a little chicken and egg. You know, you think about Big Sky and before they built the tram and, and how much more popular that made that resort and then Bridger and all that train you're talking about. You know, let's just play Fantasy Ski Resort for a second here, if you can if you can humor me on this. Yeah. If you think about, okay, you have that workhorse SLI double from 1972 or whatever as your main lift. If you could sort of re-envision the ski area and its lift fleet, what are the changes you would like to make? And when you look at that top terrain, what about a surface lift? Because it's a lot less expensive and, and maybe could run better in the wind. So just if you could kind of start over and, and, and do this how you wanted, what would you like to see 
at tea time pass for it to take that next step and and be a place that might be attractive to more skiers oh man stuart you're speaking my language <laughs> I, uh, i've often thought a surface lift up high would be the would be the answer and i'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad that you out of you know many people that would disagree would uh, bring that up because Service lifts are just not popular in the U.S., and I don't know why. I love it. I love the idea of too. a T-bar uh, bringing people up into the Alpine, and not only because of the simpleness of the operation, the lack of concern for wind shutting you down, but in some ways, um, I heard you talking about this with uh, Troy Nedved at Big Sky with the Headwaters lift. They put that lift in, and they made people hike to it from the top of Six Shooter, and I people immediately started complaining about that duck walk. And I, um, talking to really good friends of mine who patrol there, they felt like that was the best filter that ever existed, is putting that in a position where not everybody can easily get to it. Because there's a lot of people that absolutely should not be going up there. And if you have you know, the ability for little Johnny and his grandma to accidentally get on a lift because it's easy, they end up at the top of headwaters, what are you gonna do? And not saying that little Johnny's not a ripper and his grandma couldn't make it, but I'm just saying, like, you put a T-bar in at Teton Pass into some terrain that's pretty spicy, and all of a sudden, there's a few number, you know, fair number of people that can't ride a T-bar up a steep terrain, and that's probably a good thing. And that would, that would limit it, it would filter it, it would cause, you know, that to be kind of expert skiers only that could make it. And I don't know that we're ever going to get to that point of putting a T-bar up there. Um, that's certainly a hope and a dream would be to, to increase the number of lifts. And I've been working towards that goal in kind of funny ways, but I've acquired four different chairlifts that are sitting in our parking lot from various old skiers that have taken them out. And with my engineering background, that's kind of my hope is to someday repurpose some old lifts and stand them up again. Okay. So four lifts sitting in the parking lot, you have my attention. What do you have? Where did it come from and where do you want to put it? Yeah. So it all started as a pipe dream with the previous owner who had kind of talked about building this place out. And I came in in 2010 with an engineering degree and an interest in wanting to see this place in particular succeed. And I, I saw it and I bit on, on his idea and he sort of, you know, allowed me some room to sort of find a a solution. And so in 2013, we acquired an old SLI lift from Pomerel, Idaho. And it was a Skytrack removal replacement. So they were upgrading from a double to a triple. They needed the capacity. The old SLI was very interesting to me because we have an SLI and they are an orphaned company and you cannot get parts for them. So I jumped on that opportunity. We went down there and met the Skytrack team. At the time, it was Jan Leonard and a couple of his uh, employees pulling that lift out. And we paid a price for that lift because they removed it. And then we trucked it, brought it home, set it in the parking lot, and here it is. It's a you know shorter lift. It's 10 towers and not as, as much as what we would need to be able to do a large-scale project up here. That then led to the following summer, taking out the red chair at Mount Hogadon in Casper, Wyoming. So sitting on an old double riblet center pole. And that one had gone defunct because they had been robbing parts from it to feed their other chair. And 
the the owners and kind of nonprofit, at, or I guess it's city owned. So the group that was managing it at the time decided it was more of a liability leaving the towers up because that was sort of the race hill. So they opted to have the red chair removed and that went in a um, public auction because it was city owned. They had to advertise for two weeks in a newspaper and we bid $1 and we won the bid and went down there and paid for the cost of removal. And, and that was the one I, that was the first chair I'd really removed myself and learned a lot and begged, borrowed and steeled to make it happen. And we went down with um, a rope spooler from Whitefish Mountain Resort that they had loaned me because of some connections I have there and spooled the rope up and and got the towers down and, and paid for some local trucking. Got that one home. And then it sort of became a thing that we knew how to remove chairlifts and all of a sudden you start watching lift blog and some of these other outfits that sort of advertise when the lift's going in or out and you can kind of get in on some of the stuff if you want. And so we ended up doing that a few more times. I ended up with a lift out of Tahoe Donner, which is another SLI that came out and ended up with the Virginia City lift that was a riblet center pole from Bridger. And, and then when Mount Wilmot in Wisconsin got bought out by Vail Resorts, the four chairlifts that they pulled out of there to replace with three newer Doppelmeyers were basically sitting in the parking lot bound for the scrapyard. And I just happened to know the engineer that was involved in some of that work. And he called me up and asked if, if I could come out and try to sort, sort through some of the piles of lift parts and get them out to people that needed them because they had two hall chairs and two riblet chairs that were bound for scrap and Vail Resorts didn't really want 10 different ski areas coming and pilfering through and then carrying on that liability of, you know, this lift was possibly a viable, good product. And then somebody blames Vail for the failure that then occurs down the road. And so they wanted to make sure that if it was done, it was done right. And so I went in as the single point of contact and took all four of those lifts and disseminated them to a bunch of little Midwest ski areas that needed chairs and grips and, you know, brake systems and gearboxes, et cetera and then ended up with all the re the leftovers. So we have all that kind of, you know, in a lot of ways, people call it garbage, but I think steel is steel. And, you know, when you look at engineering and what can be done with it, and, and certainly the need for updating to the new modern standard with the ANSI code, none of these lifts are turnkey. You're not going to just stand them up with the existing infrastructure that was there when you took it down and call it good. You're going to need to be putting in restraining bars and lifting frames on the towers and all new electrical components and systems and drives. And, but yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of a passion to keep these little guys going. And I've found a lot of joy in, in that ability to be a source of parts for little ski hill, you know, in the middle of nowhere that needs something for an old SLI or an old riblet, and we can provide that. So that, that sounds like quite a boneyard you have there with SLIs and halls and riblets. And, you know, I realize it would be quite a challenge, but as you think through the future of Teton Pass, where else would you like a lift or, and what eventually would you like to do with that summit lift? Do you, do you want to get like a triple or quad there or something, or, or do you like having that classic double as your main lift? Yeah. So far with the, the size of our customer base, we haven't had a need for an expansion of that double. That's, that's sufficient. We don't have lift lines and as we potentially could grow, that might be a thing, but 
the reality is uh, that double is older and occasionally you have an issue. And if it does ever shut down due to high wind or some other event, it basically we have to send everybody home. And so I'd really like some redundancy uh, out of the base area. One of the places that we we really, I think, missed the mark was that expansion terrain in 2010, which is off to the north. And it exists in an old fire burn uh, from 2007. So it's a bunch of terrain that has a really good fall line. It's about 900 vertical. The little knob that it's there, it's called No Name, uh, which is kind of a, I don't know, not not the most impressive name for an area. But we uh, we did want to put a lift in there. Currently, there's a little wire rope toe up there and that wire rope toe is less than ideal and the the tow path is not awesome it doesn't allow for us to really run it on a year where we get a lot of wind because it gets scoured off so i see uh, a real need for a chairlift out of the base area to the top of that little knob first and that would build a strong foundation so we could have redundant systems but they go to two different places and then i also would like to to implement sort of a beginner pod and something that would be like a better transition from our conveyor lift learning area to some of the other terrain we have, because right now we have a midway unload on our double chair. And that midway unload is just a, a nightmare. It's steep, it's problematic for kids that hesitate, and it just, you know, the terrain it serves is great, but it just unloading halfway off a chairlift is never a good idea. And if I could put in a lift pod that basically ended somewhere around that same elevation band and possibly even goes lower down than our base area because we do have about 200 vert below us that's within our permit boundary. We could basically add a beginner pod, remove the midway unload, keep that lift spinning, you know, more at a normal speed because we get a lot of slows and stops due to the beginner traffic that struggles on that lift. And that would kind of round out a good foundation for then wanting to build up into the upper elevations. And I know I say all that and realize that none of those improvements are all that attractive until you get into that upper elevation as far as a selling point to get new skiers. But I'm a practical person and that's just the way my brain works is to think about how we could build a strong foundation and then possibly put in you know something up high, whether it's a T-bar or not to make more sense. But additionally, the terrain to the north and the terrain to the south of our permit boundary is is great backcountry skiing right now. You know, this place exists up here because it is good snow most years. And I could see expansions to the north being a real benefit, you know, into some kind of neat, uh, steep terrain. But that's all going to come with, you know, a whole bunch of other things as far as forest service approval and stuff. So those those few lifts that I outlined, we currently have a master development plan that includes all of that. So we we have some turnkey projects that would be a go if we had, you know, if we struck the lotto or something. Yeah. So, so you have no lack of imagination. I have to imagine one thing you're thinking about a lot, Charles, is snowmaking. It sounds like you don't have any yet. Correct me if I'm wrong. None. Yep. Talk about your think, current thinking around snowmaking, if it's in your Forest Service permit, if you have access to water. I mean, again, I realize this is an expense. Some small scary has been able to get grants and such to help, you know, economic development things. But what's your kind of state of thinking around snowmaking and whether it would ever be possible? Yeah, well, if you would have asked me this question last year, I would have laughed and I would have said we don't need it. But 
clearly here we are. And I wouldn't be making snow this week. That's for sure. We're not getting below freezing at night. And so that's part of it. We, we certainly do see other skiers such as, you know, Bridger Bull uses it minimally in their base area to get things open and to build enough of a pack to be consistent every year. And yeah, we do not have any snowmaking. A lot of Montana skiers do not have snowmaking and we haven't needed it. We haven't had to rely on it. So it's, it's been a thing when I talk to skiers that have it, they tell you absolutely, if you don't need to do it, don't do it. It's like the biggest headache ever. And, and I, the folks that do it, I have a lot of respect for them because the tr- it's a tremendous amount of work, you know, great divide is exists on it. They do a lot of snowmaking and it's just a tremendous amount of work having talked to those guys, but it's something that we're thinking about. And, and every ski area that's struggling right now is probably thinking about it. We have a small pond above our learning area that has a potential for expansion uh, to be able to create a bit of a reservoir. And as far as forest service approval goes, I don't know the intricacies of it because I haven't, I haven't ever done it, but I know that that is a possibility. It's, it's something that's written into the permit as far as, um, you know, potential water rights, et cetera. A lot of that, you know, does not impact agricultural and water basins in a negative way because farmers and ranchers would actually appreciate that the snow be frozen or the water be frozen and held in a reservoir because it, it creates a more long-term flow throughout the late summer months. So it's something that would be great if we had the capital and the money, it's, it would be something I'd be looking into for this coming summer is to try to figure out a way to do a, a little bit, at least in the lower elevation so that we could have a consistent opening every year. So we've talked about a couple things that are very much at odds. One is just the fact that you're remote, you don't get a ton of skiers. The other is a lot of these potential capital investments. What I probably should have brought up a lot earlier Charles, is that this is not your only thing. And and I've seen this model throughout the country where a businessman who has other local businesses who who can afford to maybe lose money for a couple of years on a ski area will put some of that capital from his other businesses into it. And I'm talking about places like Mike Taylor at Holiday Mountain in New York and Bruce Monet Jr. up at Titus Mountain in upstate New York, where they have these, you know, very deep community roots and and they have other things they're doing. And so they don't have to live or die by the ski area. You have a, a little bit of a similar setup. You have some other businesses. What can you tell us about those and how they interact with Teton Pass and, and maybe help the ski area keep going? Yeah, I think it's not it's not by design, <laughs> if, if that's fair. And I don't know if it is for those other guys. I think that, that there's an inevitability if you have something that's losing or... Um, breaking even at best, you still have to find a way to pay the bills. And so I'm a scrappy person. I'm also kind of well-versed in a lot of different industries. And so, yeah, I came came into this not really knowing how it was going to shake out. And if, if I could pull it off with just running the ski hill, I probably would try to just do that. Um, but there's a lot of ways in which the summer months, I got to find a way to, to pay the bills. And so, yeah, we've I've been, I mean... I have a long list of other things that I've done and tried out that have worked out and or not worked out. And some of those include engineering, consulting engineering, as well as construction, contract lift work, you know, doing some contract lift maintenance at other ski areas. I have a background in 
and tree cutting from working for the Forest Service for a bunch of years. So I got into doing arborist stuff in our local town. So I do a fair amount of tree work just to uh, kind of keep things going in the summertime. And then recently took on a, uh, my newest endeavor is working for one of the two big insurance companies that offer insurance for ski areas as a lift inspector. So yeah, I get to get to have my foot in a lot of doors and get to network and do a lot of other things. Uh, most of them related to the ski industry, but it allows for, yeah, maybe a little bit of backfill on a lean year and also offers something during the slow times because we aren't year round. We don't have mountain biking or zip lining or anything going in the summer. So when, you know, I get the lifts maintained and the, the facilities maintained and we don't have capital money to go build anything new. We basically have to find a way to make it, make the rest of the year work for us. Yeah. I'm not surprised to hear any of that and all the, the scrappiness. You're a Midwest guy, right? Yeah. Originally born in Minnesota. Yeah. And, and what brought you out to Montana? Uh, some family stuff when I was about 14. So I ended up Coming out to Shoto, which is the small town that's near the ski hill here, went to high school here in a tiny little high school, with, graduated with 46 kids. Um, but yeah, originally Minnesota, a lot of families still back there. Yeah, I'm a Midwest guy myself, grew up in Michigan, and I, I still admire the Midwest work ethic. What did you think of, I mean, coming from Minnesota, I don't know if you were a skier when you grew up there, but what did you think the first time you came up and saw Teton Pass? Because again, to underscore the point for listeners, this this place is just stunning. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up skiing, like my first ski area was Trollhagen. I, I, I don't nice. remember it, but I was four years old. My parents took me out there and we used to uh, ski Highland Hills all the time. That was, oh, that cool. was like home mountain and for... 10 years straight, I I had, was a pass holder at Highland Hills. It was, you know, it was our daycare. We'd get dropped off mm -hmm. at nine in the morning and ski till 9 p.m. Wow. And uh, that's still the that's still the existence of Highland Hills. If you haven't been there to see it, it's amazing. It's it's the Twin Cities largest daycare. They just parents, <laughs> parents drop kids off for day the whole day and don't pick them up till 9 p.m. And it's just laps on rope toes with terrain parks. And it's awesome. And so I grew up skiing man-made snow and rope toes. Yeah, came out, I think came out west the first time in 95. We had some family out here in Montana and skied this little place, Teton Pass. And that was the first time I'd ever been exposed to natural snow. And so you get six inches of powder and I you couldn't navigate. Like I did not know how, it was just like my brain didn't work. And you start figuring it out and you're, you're leaning way, way back and, you know, trying to learn how to ski actual snow but instantly you start to realize that that's that's where it's at and you don't want to go back and so then all through high school and into college i got to ski a bunch of resorts in montana and all over the world and other places and you start to realize that the mountains are where you want to be and you know i don't have any discontent over growing up in minnesota but i'd certainly have a hard time living there now and having the love I do for the mountains, it's kind of, it just feels better. So you wind up in this beautiful place. It's also a confusing place. I think most people hear Teton Pass and they're thinking of Teton Pass, Wyoming, obviously pretty near Jackson Hole and Grand Targhee and pretty well known to a lot of Western skiers and travelers. Tell us what's behind this name. Is there a Teton Pass locally there in Montana? And also your thoughts long-term on the name, because you've said in the past, that you thought maybe it was time for a new name to clear up some of that confusion. 
Yeah, it's true. It's super confusing. And in 1967, when this place was first founded, they named it after a local landmark, which is on the Continental Divide, about maybe four or five miles as the crow flies. There's an actual Teton Pass. And it's not here. This place doesn't really exist on a pass. And so it was just kind of a, I think they like the the alliteration or whatever, or the name, they just like the sound of it. And they wanted to name it something local. And so it's confusing because we're in Montana, we're in Teton County. We have the Teton River, which flows right by us. And it stems from this, this mountain right here. And we have a Teton Peak, we have a Teton Butte. We have all these things named Teton, which, you know, if you're not familiar, that stems from the French word for breast, which is basically comes from this area was inhabited with a bunch of French fur traders back in the day. So all those things around the Grand Tetons and the Jackson Hole area are also named Teton because these French fur traders just looked at mountains and saw what they saw and named them after Teton. So that's the the whole history in a nutshell of why the area is named Teton Pass and a bunch of the local things are also named Teton. But in 67, nobody knew about Teton Pass, Wyoming. Around here, it wasn't a thing. I mean, the highway existed, but it wasn't a backcountry ski destination by any means. And so it kind of stayed that way for a long time. And we did our thing, they did their thing, and nobody knew the wiser because we're only servicing the local people here. And at some point in the 80s, they actually changed the name of this place to Rocky Mountain High. And that was, uh, it was kept Rocky Mountain High for a few seasons, I think 84 to 89 or 90. And um, Rocky Mountain High is still kind of a local love it or hate it kind of name that people will throw out there. And I don't know if it's the John Denver connection that people hate or what it is, but they, uh, they dropped that during an ownership change and went back to Teton Pass to kind of keep the roots of what it was. And it's been that way ever since. And I came in and I started to see people from Bozeman coming up here and people from other places that ski around the world. And they come up here and they have more of a connection with the Wyoming highway backcountry skiing. And so it started to throw me off and to start to feel the pains of like having to answer the questions of, wait a minute, you, so you're in Wyoming or Idaho or where exactly? Cause you know, Idaho has a Teton County, Wyoming has a Teton County and people hear Teton and they immediately think of the Grand Teton. So yeah, it's massively confusing for a few people that are more well-traveled for our locals. This place is always Teton pass. And so it's kind of that struggle. I would love to figure out a way to rebrand and differentiate and maybe someday step away and be our own thing and to kind of stand on our own. But for now, we got a, a strong local pride that, you know, and, and myself included, that kind of we like the Teton Pass for, for right now because we haven't come up with anything better. And it's sort of fun being the underdog, being the little lesser known. And uh, and we refer to ourselves as the other Teton Pass sometimes. And every year I'll get a few calls and voicemails left on the answer machine that just are hilarious people calling that you know they're staying at the teton lodge in jackson and they want to know when when they can get their tram pass or what time the scenic chairlift ride starts and we're just you know like giggling to ourselves because yeah it's that place is blown up and you know um one more i guess super kind of 
funny point of confusion is this range that we're in, the mountain range is technically called the Sawtooth Mountains. Okay. And that's not the Sawtooths in Idaho, which are also more well known. So we have two different poor name choices that cause us to be lesser recognized. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're owning it, which is, which is uh, sometimes the only way you can go. Another pain point, I think, over the years has been the access road, which maybe wasn't kept up by the, I think the Forest Service is supposed to maintain it, but talk about that road and what the condition is of it now and what, if anything, you could do about it. Yeah, thanks. There's, uh, yeah, that's, that is the number one thing that we get as far as a grievance is for, and when people come here for the first time. We have 11 miles of gravel leading up here and we, are tasked with having to plow it and to maintain it. However, up until this recent uh, reissuance of the permit, we were not allowed to do any summer maintenance on it because it is a Forest Service road. And so that road has uh, in the past gotten really bad. It would go six, eight years before the Forest Service would find the way to get some funding to send a road grader down it. And so it would end up with potholes and washboards and big, big washouts and, you know, issues like that. It's, there's no guardrails. There's, you know, just any number of things that are trouble and we have big snow years. And so with those big snow years, we're using some super old equipment up here that we can afford to run. And it's a a plow truck that used to be a two wheel drive plow truck and a road grader that's from the sixties. And so it's basically me and me alone that that keeps the road open in the wintertime and a few others that have tried to get trained up in the plow and the grader but it's a it's a challenging job to do and you can't really just send anyone down this road you got to know each and every corner and where the edge is because when you get the plow truck stuck then the only thing that'll get that out is the road grader and if you get the road grader stuck the only thing that might even have a chance to get that out is a snowcat you don't want to get stuck. You don't want to send a new operator down it. You don't want to train a new person every year. And so we just do it and we get it done and it tends to work out. But yeah, we're throwing gravel on it when it gets icy. We're plowing it when it gets snow. And in the summertime, we're writing letters to the Forest Service to try to get something done. And when they can, they get grants and they get it done. But oftentimes it goes years without it. And um, as of just recently with the new permit, writing that happened we were able to negotiate in the ability for us to do summer maintenance on it in kind of a cost uh recovery of the permit fees that we pay so to be able to have the pleasure to use the road as a commercial road in the winter time and to plow it we pay a commercial road use fee and so you know salt on the wound in some ways because we do all the work and then we still have to pay to do the work which I don't know of any other ski areas that have as long of a road situation as we do. I think Montana Snowball has a pretty long, challenging road that they plow. But yeah, we're doing eight miles of forest road and then a few miles of county road that the county tends not to do. And so it's 11 miles in total that typically gets done. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, you have one of the longer access roads that I'm aware of and it gets pretty dicey toward the top. So Lots you're dealing with just to get people up there. Curious, and I want to finish with a talk on passes here today, Charles. Curious if you've had a conversation with the folks at Indy Pass, because that's been pretty good at sending new skiers, new visits to places that are maybe a little more 
off the radar that people haven't thought about before, especially as as Epic and Icon sell more and more passes and you have more and more skiers at, you know, a, a more or less static number of mountains and they add a couple a year. But is that a conversation you've had? Have you made contact with them? Is that something you're considering? Yeah, they reached out to us in like the second year of their program. And I talked to Doug and some of those guys. And I think at the time it was, it was of interest. We were sort of floating it around, thinking about it. You know, we're such a small fish in the grand scheme of things. It's hard to know that that would be a real benefit. And I think that's, for me, it's, there's not enough of a selling point yet. I think it's, it's not off the table, but it's also when you're selling a lift ticket like we do for $55, which is the retail adult day price. And you start to think about all the hands that are in the cookie jar that are taking a piece of that. I can't afford to water that down even more than I already am by giving a cut to somebody else that, you know, and and that's assuming that they're not bringing in brand new people. And the, the idea, you know, with the indie is that you'd get new people, it'd be addition on top of what you're already servicing. And so that extra would be just extra, but due to all the unique challenges that I kind of lined out and the, the struggles that we face up here, I sort of don't know if that typical model would, would actually work for us to bring new people. We don't have lodging up here. We're not really a destination. And so it ends up being more day use skiers that are from the local community. And so, you know, if I had lodging, I'd say, well, yeah, absolutely. That would make a lot of sense. Bring people in, they drive all this way, they get to the end of this long, hard road and they could stay a night. But if you're driving from anywhere, you know, of any sort of distance, it makes it quite a challenge to hit Teton Pass and then then kind of springboard onto anything else within a day. And I'm not to say that I'm maybe I'm not wrong, but or maybe, you know, I could be wrong and this whole thing would actually add another 10% visits. But I guess the other part of me being sort of stubborn and, and wanting to sort of remain fiercely independent is I see the Indy Pass has grown to like 180 resorts now. And that sort of kind of, it looks a little counter to the whole premise of being a independent small mom and pop. It's like kind of collaborating with a bunch of others that are maybe supportive in, in a way, but also it's sort of turning into its own corporate feel in some ways. So as long as you have your own domain here and can do what you want, one of the really interesting things, this is the last question I'll ask you today, is is you are starting to offer mid-mountain rentals. And I've seen some ski areas do this really successfully. Platykill in New York has a really good, they're also like you Friday through Sunday and holidays, but they have a really strong midweek mountain rental business. Now, Platykill is three hours from New York City, so there's obviously a lot of people and a lot of money to feed that. Talk about the mid-mountain rentals, if you're seeing any momentum on that. And, and what can you tell us about how much that costs and what folks would get if they decided to do that. Yeah. Yeah. We, um, we're trying, it's not, it's not a huge, it's not a huge part of our business, but we, we basically took the page out of another mountain in Montana, which is Turner mountain and Turner mountain up in Libby is about the same size as us. They got one chairlift and they operate weekends only and they're all nonprofit and volunteer, but they started doing this midweek, mountain rental. And I think they're, they remain to be one of the cheapest options. They were, I know five, 10 years ago, they were doing it for $2,000. You could rent the whole place. And um, 
we sort of saw that people started asking us if we would do it because they were getting turned away because Turner had every every opportunity day they they could do was booked up. And so we saw, well, maybe we could do that and it would work out. And we, we tried. And I think I've entertained many different forms of what that is, is whether it's a, a wedding or a bachelor party or a corporate event. Um, We've also done the Air Force Base in Great Falls uh, has an air wing, the C-130 pilots that rented it out one time a couple of years in a row. But f- we were doing it for $4,000 a day, which was kind of covering our base cost of operation. And because we plow the road and we operate generators and burn diesel and uh, have payroll, we're not volunteer, that was sort of the minimum that we could charge to make it make sense and then food and beverage would be on top of that and it was never really a big money maker but we'd have we'd have fun we'd offer a few more days and we'd keep our staff employed for a few more days of winter and we sort of upped our price to 6500 this last year and you know with that price tag it's not attractive to a bunch of people it's a little bit surprising because i know showdown offers a similar deal now and since covid they they opened up that as well and they charge a lot more than that but they're able to cater to a slightly higher wealth bracket in the Bozeman area of people that have successful businesses that are looking for the opportunity to do a retreat or, you know, a team building exercise or whatever they might be wanting to do. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it's an attempt. We still do it when we can, when it makes sense, but it's like a few weddings a year, maybe a, a few little businesses that want to do a Christmas party or something like that. And other than that, it's, it's not every weekend and it hasn't really taken off like I thought it might. Well, Charles, hopefully it'll pick up when the snow comes and I'm sure it will. It always comes back eventually. Listen, I really appreciate you giving us so much time today, especially with everything you're dealing with, with the ski area. I know it's a tough winter, but stay strong. It sounds like you have the, the will and the heart to make it through. So thank you for sharing all this with us today. I really appreciate it. And, and hopefully things turn around for you real fast here. Yeah, I appreciate it, Stuart. Thanks for your time. That's Charles Lavac, owner of Teton Pass, Montana. Really, really awesome job, Charles. Man, I was sincerely heartbroken to hear after we recorded this. You had to call it in the winter. I cannot imagine how hard that must have been for you. Just know that me and the rest of Storm Nation are rooting hard for you to get the lifts spinning again next winter. And I believe you have the mental toolkit and the heart to do it. I hope you all enjoyed that as well. That kind of candor is about as hard to find as Teton Pass Ski Area in Montana. Please go support that joint when you can. Thank you for listening. I've got lots more coming your way. In fact, I've already recorded episodes with the leaders of Camelback, Pennsylvania and Red Mountain, British Columbia. Those are both excellent, I assure you. And I have a whole bunch more on the schedule, including Okemo, Sugar Bowl, Mission Ridge, Tenny, Panorama, Bluewood, and Arapahoe Basin, among others. And you can also visit stormskiing.com to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter and ensure that you get new podcasts the moment they are live. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with key podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts seven full days before everyone else. 
You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Street Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.